Guys, it's going to have Paul come up. So this interview is going to be even less prepared than uh, than me and Russ's one. So we'll see how we go. And generally, um, you know, improv can be uh, a little bit more humorous or more emotional than maybe more, prepared. Or more awkward. <laughs> yeah, like it is now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the first question I had for you was... Tell us a bit about who you are, family, job, stuff. Stuff. Are you Probably on? I don't need that. Okay, cool. The lapel should be on if it's coming through. I'm Paul, married to Melody, who's in the corner with um, our youngest, Zachary. And we've also got Caleb, who's three-year-old, who's hopefully still in hibernation in the library around the corner. Um, my job, I'm reluctant to say it because then you've got to confess that you're a lawyer and run the risk that half the people walk out the door. <laughs> um, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so he's had an interaction with a lawyer we could talk about afterwards. I'm one of the good guys, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They, they all say that until they serve a writ. Um, the next question was... Yes, it's going well. What is the most challenging thing that you have ever had to do in your life? <laughs> Apart from this interview. Um, <laughs> oh. um, if I say labour, it's strange because you don't actually go through it. But to watch someone go through it was quite challenging. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of challenges in life. I mean, it's hard to pinpoint one. I mean, the, I think the hard thing in life, to be honest, is to... I, the hard thing that I find, really, it's not um, you know, something you'd see in Fear Factor or whatever the TV show is, but the hard thing I find is to to go through life in a secular world but still highlight that there's a point of difference in your life. Um, and I think that's something that I really wrestle with all the time, is just how do, can I make sure I'm just not one of the crowd and just like looking like everyone else and not causing anyone to ask any questions because I don't see anyone anything that's any different. So mm. I think that that's one thing that um, I've always had to remind myself daily is how to get that right. Yeah, That's good. Very easy just to blend in. Very easy. Um, and the uh, last question on probably deeper, more personal note. Deeper, um, yeah. Scrunch or fold? <laughs> fold. Okay. I'm a very ordered person. <laughs> All right, so sweet. I like to have a system to the process. Yeah. Um, all right. Nice segue into Cross an Eternity. That's awesome. Just a rip a little bridge in there that just went to perfection. Um, thanks, Zach. No, it's good to be here. Like, let's just pray, and then we'll talk about... Um, some points, some ideas and some concepts that we want to dwell on tonight. Dear Lord, we just thank you for your word. We thank you that it's truth, um, and we thank you that it's there to challenge us. And Lord, we thank you for the cross and the reality of your son who has been uh, gave his life for us. And Lord, we pray that tonight we just might reflect on a different aspect of that, that it might be reminded of us afresh again today, um, but not just in theory and practice what it means for us. We ask this in your name. And everyone said... Amen. All right, we've been doing a series on the cross, and, and Shabu said, what do you want to talk about? Um, and there's, I find, Melody and I often talk about in terms of years, um, and we, we I find each year kind of God teaches us something a little bit different, and it's nice to kind of zoom out for the year and think, what's he been teaching you? And I remember last year, we were definitely taught in a very real way to just trust him each step, even if you don't know what the future holds. Um, this year, we've been thinking about eternity a lot. Um, and so that's when Shub said, you know, the cross and, um, it didn't take long to think, well, cross and eternity is probably right for, um, for what we were going to talk, for what I wanted to talk on. Now, I'm going to talk about the cross and eternity because I think 
it works well with the theme of a cross because you can, I reckon you can only really understand the cross properly and get a really good concept on the cross if you've also got a really good concept on eternity and what that means. And I don't just mean eternity in a future sense, something that is yet to come, that it's hard to get your head around. I mean in terms of how eternity shapes the way we live here and now. See, I think a major problem that, that we struggle with, that I struggle with, like we all probably do, is, is we have this um, issue of tunnel vision. And by tunnel vision, I mean we focus on our immediate needs and our immediate circumstances and our immediate wants and our immediate desires. And I think that can cause us to lose a bit of the broader perspective that God wants us to have. Now, I remember one weekend I was around the, um, around the kitchen table and I was looking out um, into our backyard. We've got kind of these windows that you kind of can look out into the backyard area. And um, in our backyard, we've got this decking, and the decking hits concrete, and then the concrete has this really convenient little slope that goes down um, towards the garage, okay? And often, Caleb loves this slope. Caleb's my three-year-old son. Um, he runs down it, he rolls stuff down it, throws trucks down it, does whatever. No steps, just this nice, smooth, concrete slope for him. Anyway, I looked out from the kitchen one day, and he was standing at the top of this slope um, with his brand spanking new scooter. And uh, he wasn't just standing at the top of the slope, because you could, you could read him like a textbook. You know exactly what was going through his mind, because he's looking down a hill, he's standing on his scooter, you know, he's kind of poised, and you just know all that he can see at that moment is this awesome slope that could pick up some incredible speed on his brand new scooter. But it's one of those moments where you see him too late. So you see in the kitchen table, you know he's at the top of the hill, um, but there's nothing you can do about it. you just got to step back and watch and hope for the best. Um, but So from Caleb's perspective, all he could see was that slope. All he was focused on was the speed he could pick up on that slope. From my perspective, I saw the slope, but I saw that after the slope, it flattens out. And then it doesn't flatten out for very long before you go flat into the garage wall. And not only the garage wall, there's this water tap that's about the perfect height to imprint itself into Caleb's face. My perspective was very different to Caleb's, which was all about the hill. Too late. you just got to watch it unfold and see what happens. Down he goes. And for a moment there, I was quite impressed because he was handling the scooter quite well on this hill and he picked up some good speed. But then there was the inevitable wobbles, I think, as he realized how quick he was going. Scooter drops over. Caleb comes off, manages to get on his feet. I was impressed again. A um, couple more steps, but he puts his hands out just in time to stop himself on the garage wall. I think the water tap's about here at that point. Now, I think that demonstrated to me a little bit of tunnel vision. Okay? Caleb saw the hill. He was focused on his immediate needs, his immediate desires, but there was a broader perspective that would have been helpful for him to have if he was going to make a wise decision at that particular moment. Now, admittedly, Caleb's three. I could have gone to him and reasoned with him and said, you know, that hill was going to flatten out and you might smash your face on the water tap. He probably still would have done it. But I think it highlights the concept that as we go older, we suffer from the same problem in a different way. We get beyond three and then we enter into school and everything becomes about school. Okay? We've got to fit in, we've got to have friends, we've got to enjoy ourselves, we've got to do well. That Our whole world can revolve around school. Then particularly when we get to this time of year for our year 12s, uh, and the guys in my life group, they've been wrestling with sacks and exams and assessments, and everything becomes about year 12 then. A whole world gets, gets wrapped up in this mark that I'm going to get at the end that's going to determine my destiny. And then you move into uni, and then you start to think career. Okay, I need to get my career straight, and then you become very focused on that. And meanwhile, along the way, people are getting very focused on relationships. 
I've got to get this boyfriend-girlfriend right. Who am I going to get paired up with? How's that going to work? Well, they get in a relationship, and that's everything to them. Can't think of anything other than that relationship. And they get on further, and then you get married, and, and you might have kids, and your whole world suddenly becomes kids. It's kids this, every conversation is about kids. Now, these things aren't inherently evil, but this is different expressions of the tunnel vision that I'm talking about that goes along. Either way, it's all about my immediate circumstances, my immediate wants, and my immediate needs. We become totally wrapped up in what I call the here and the now. And I think we can lose the bigger, the bigger perspective about what is to come. Now, why is that bigger picture important? Because I think we will never live life the way God intended it to be lived if we don't have one eye to eternity. I'm going to say that again because I think that's an important principle for us to get our head around. We will never live life the way God intended it to be lived unless we live with an eye to eternity. And this is the point that Paul picks up in a letter that he wrote to a church in the land of Corinth, in a place called Corinth. And it was his second letter, so it's found in 2 Corinthians. And we're going to read chapters, uh, a little bit of chapter 4 and a little bit of chapter 5. So I'd encourage you to get your Bibles out. If you've got phones, flick to the passage, because we're going to be working uh, through it from front to end. Okay? And Paul wrestles with this idea of eternity, and he emphasizes the truth through it, because he knows this church needs to grasp onto it if they're going to live life to the full the way Jesus wanted to be lived, if they're going to experience the fullness of life that he had for them. He knew they had to get their head around this concept of eternity and not simply get wrapped up in the here and the now. And I'm going to start in chapter 4 in verse 13. Now there it says, it is written. So Paul is writing this to the church. He's saying, it is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. With that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore we speak. So Paul's saying, I have come to believe something. There's something I've started to get my head around. I, I, I understand a truth. And because I understand it, I've got to share it with you. His knowledge of this truth and his knowledge of this belief has co- compels him now to share it with the church that he is writing to. So what is this truth that he's got his head around? Well, we see this in verse 14. It says, because we know, this is what he knows, that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. So the first thing that Paul notes here, the first thing he's come to believe that he's got to tell people about is the fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Paul starts with the cross. He starts with a reminder of that point in time around which the whole Christian faith pivots. Is that point in time, it pivots around that point in time because it's a single point in time where all of the sins from the people that lived before him and all the sins of the people that would live after him, including those of you and I, they were all placed on a single person who died a single death on a single cross at that single point in time. And that's exactly where Paul goes. He reminds us that Jesus came and that he died for us, but he doesn't emphasize the death here. He emphasizes the life because he says, God raised Jesus from the dead. All right. Now, this is where Jesus starts to get an interesting person for people to interact with. Because one thing to think about a historical Jesus. It's one thing to think about a good person who said some good things, who's talked about in the Bible. It's another one to think of that person as a son of God 
whom God then, who died a physical death, but God then raised him back to life. And more than that, he now continues to live with God in heaven. And he offers that same life to you and I. That's a very different Jesus to kind of, to get your head around. But that is a thing that Paul has come to know. But it's not just that. He goes a step further to say, in the same way Jesus has been raised by the dead, he says he will raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. Just like Jesus rose from the dead, so he says all those who believe in him are also going to be raised up from the dead to be with God in heaven. Now, that's a lot to get your head around as well. And we're not talking about a physical resurrection here in the sense that Jesus experienced. It's talking about a life that is given to the souls of a person who believes in Jesus Christ, that they can then be risen up again and presented perfect because of what Jesus has done on their behalf. They will experience a life that goes beyond this life. And this is what Paul says in verse 15. He says it's all for our benefit. He says all, all this is for your benefit. So that grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. This eternal life that's granted to those who believe in Jesus, it's, it's for their benefit so that grace and thankfulness can, can overwhelm people for all time to the glory of God. That's pretty incredible. That eternal life is given to those who believe for their benefit as a gift so that thankfulness can overflow to God for all, for all eternity, for all time. This is what Paul has come to know. He says, because I believe this, because I have an understanding of this, I've got to tell you this. I've got to share it with you, is what Paul's saying. Now, I just make the simple point at this, at, at, at this point in the text. I just want to make the simple thing. Eternity is real. Okay? If, you don't know, if you're not going to remember anything from this section, remember that eternity is real. Can you say it back to me? Eternity is real. One more time. I want you to say it because I want you to own it. Eternity is real. Don't get conned into believing that the life that we live here is all there is. Because we so easily do, don't we? We say, yeah, I know about eternity, but really all we're focused on is the here and the now. And all we care about is what's happening tomorrow, Monday, and the next working week. Eternity is real. Don't get wrapped up or sucked into the temptation to think this is all there is because it's not. We can't get lured into thinking that our immediate needs and our immediate desires are the only thing that's important because they're not. Church, eternity is real. We may lose sight of it. We may not focus on it. We might ignore it, but it doesn't change the truth that eternity is real and will confront each and every one of us. Now, it's one thing, though, to acknowledge that eternity is real. It's another thing for eternity to be relevant. Okay? Those drums are real. But for me right now, they're not particularly relevant. Okay? So it's one thing for us to say eternity is real, but then we've got to think, okay, well, is it relevant to me? And that's what Paul then starts to talk about next in verse 16. You can see it's relevant to him because he says, therefore, because eternity is real, therefore, we do not lose heart. Paul says, because I believe in this eternity, I do not lose heart. Now, I realize that a lot of you are coming to this point in 2 Corinthians cold without the context of what's happened in the lead up to this. 
So let me give you a bit of an indication about Paul's situation here. He was facing incredible opposition. He was facing incredible hardships and difficulties. He was facing incredible opposition from the Jews because the Jews wanted Jesus to be forgotten about altogether. They just killed him on the cross, so they'd much prefer it if he just disappeared from a reality for them. But then Paul was also facing opposition from the non-Jews because the non-Jews then didn't care so much that Jesus died, but they had all sorts of gods, and so they didn't like Paul's message that there was one and only creator God. So Paul was suffering all this opposition from both non-Jews, or the Gentiles as they were called, and the Jews, to the extent where in chapter 1, in verse 8 and 9, he says this. He says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province in Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. And then just earlier in chapter 4, in verse 8 and 9, he says, We were hard-pressed on every side, but we weren't crushed. We were perplexed, but we weren't in despair. We were persecuted, but not abandoned. We were struck down, but we weren't destroyed. Paul suffered incredible opposition. He's saying, I, I, was, I, I feared even for my own life. But despite all of these things, Paul says, I know that eternity is real. Therefore, I've got to tell you that eternity is real. And because eternity is real, I'm not going to lose heart, despite the opposition that I'm facing at the moment. Now, why doesn't Paul lose heart? Well, we see this in the rest, verse 16 through to 18. He says, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is just temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. It's eternal. See, Paul knows that an eternity awaits. And he knows that the reward that awaits him in that eternity will far outweigh any reward or pursuit or achievement that he could possibly experience in this world. And it outweighs any difficulty or opposition or challenge that might be thrown at him in this world. Even though Paul says he despairs even to the point of death, He knew that that was ultimately just a temporary reality. It was a momentary trouble. It was a significant trouble, but it was momentary when it is looked at in the light of eternity. And so Paul says, well, because I know eternity is real, and because I know that reality is going to eclipse any reality that's here on earth, therefore I don't lose heart, despite the difficulties and the challenges that I'm facing. He knew there was something on the other side of this life. He knew there was something bigger, something better, something more beautiful, something more perfect. He knew there was something that was worth striving for far more than anything that he could experience in this earthly place that he was at the moment. And he looked forward to that time where that eternity would swallow up his mortal reality. And it was that eternal reality that therefore gave him hope in really challenging situations. Churches, we've got to say, following Jesus is hard. It is hard. It expressed itself differently than what it did with Paul in our context today, but it's hard. Because as I talked about earlier when I was being interviewed, it, being, following Jesus means being different from the crowd. It means living a life which is not focused on yourself, but is focused on others and is focused on God. 
It means standing firm when other people make choices that lead them in, leads them in a direction away from God. It means facing more and more opposition or ridicule as this world then moves further and further away from God and God becomes less and less and less of a reality for your average person on the street. In a world that is moving further and further away, in a world that's just getting darker and darker and darker, it's eternity that gives us hope because we won't find it here. And what Paul does, the fact that eternity gives us hope, it's because it reminds us that the issues we face here, they're only temporary. The brokenness we can feel, it's only temporary. The isolation and ridicule we can get from people, it's only temporary. There are things that we can wrestle with which we know are hard, the sin in our life that we can struggle with. We know it's only temporary. But on the other hand, we also know that God is eternal and his eternity will far outweigh it all. And it's in this context that Paul says eternity is real. I know about it. That's why I've got to tell you about it, but it's not just real. This eternity is what gives us hope because in this dark world, it's eternity that you've got to cling on to because there's nothing here that's worth clinging on to. You know, but more than eternity giving us hope, eternity gives us a home. And this is what it talks about in chapter 5. It describes eternity not just as our source of hope, but our home, the place in which we belong. See, in chapter 5, verse 1 then, it says, Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Now, to understand the point Paul is making here, you've got to get the contrast between a tent, an earthly tent, and a building from God. And to be honest, this parallel appeals to me greatly because I'm not a camping person in the slightest, not in any way, shape, or form. So let me reflect a little bit on my experience in a tent. In year nine in high school, they kind of suck you into this cadet program, which is sort of this training to go in the army, but you're in high school, so you're never going to go to the army, so they just call it cadets. And you have to march and you have to learn certain things. And there's this sort of initiation hike where you just walk and hike for four days. You've got your pack on the back. That's got your tent, your food, your supplies, your clothes, everything that you kind of need. And so you went on this recruit hike, as it was called, and you just went from place to place, no particular views. You're just walking through a forest, really, for four days. Um, and, each day, and as you'd expect, the weather was terrible. So at each night, you'd come and you'd be dejected after a day of walking. And then you'd get out this little tent called a hoochie. And a hoochie is like this little nylon sheet that goes over a rope with a piece that you put over the end to try and keep your head vaguely warm. And then you'd, pent it, you'd peg the tent down and you'd try and secure it as hard as you could. And you'd, try and, and you'd build bunkers around the outside to try and keep the water out, and you'd try and fortify it as best you could. But inevitably, every night, you couldn't keep the water out of these tents. The pegs would fling out of the ground at the worst times during the night. You couldn't keep warm because the, the fire was far too away, and the wind would howl straight through the tent. And there was no peace and quiet because there's nothing but a thin nylon sheet between you and the suffering soldier that was next door. And there's no sense of permanence 
because you know that really you're just on the way through to a different destination. So in the morning you'll be packing all this wet, muddy muck up, putting it back in your bag and heading off to the next destination. Now, some of you may be camping people, and that's okay. You know, we all have our flaws, that's all right. Um, but no matter how much you camping people will try to convince me, you can never turn a tent into a home. You cannot do it. You can make them more comfortable, but you will never be able to convert a tent into a home because a tent offers no real protection. It offers no sense of permanence. It offers no sense of peace or comfort, and it is just intended to be a place that we occupy on the way through to a better and bigger and, and, and more meaningful destination. That's a tent. And we, we can't turn a tent into a home. They're two completely different things. And in the same way here, Paul is saying, this life that we live is an earthly tent. It's nothing more than a tent. Our home is yet to come. There's a building that's built by God in eternity, and that's our home. That's our place of permanence. That's where we will find comfort and security. But until then, we're just in a temporary dwelling place that we're in for a time while we're passing through. And we can't turn that tent into a home. Now, thank goodness this earthly tent is never intended to be our home, to be honest. I mean, I, I flick through the ABC app every now and again on the train on the way in, and the headlines just horrify me. Um, honestly, you read it. I mean, this week, just alone, it was a masked swordsman that was killed two ki- people in a Swedish high school. Human remains are found in a suitcase in a highway in South Australia. You, know, you just keep reading article upon article about the European asylum seeker crisis where people were just devastated in Syria who were leaving their country. You know, this, this world is heading in a direction which is not good. Thank goodness it's just a tent for us. And these are just the extreme examples in the news, but they remind us of the sinfulness of man and not the sinfulness of the world out there, but the sinfulness that's in our own hearts. They remind us about the sinfulness and darkness that's in each and every one of us for which we need Jesus Christ. And you see these in just everyday examples where families are often ripped apart, where relationships break down because of conflict and bitterness and unforgiveness, where we see boyfriend-girlfriend relationships move in, in a really unhealthy direction, in a direction that can often lead to violence and all sorts of other issues. We see people get caught up in drugs and alcohol and and their life just moves in a direction which is damaging to them and it's hard to watch. And it's not just about bad choices. You know, sometimes there are circumstances that are beyond our control which just remind us about the temporal nature of our dwelling. You know, our circumstances can change, we can lose a job, things can get really hard, our health can fail us, or the health of loved ones can be really difficult to manage sometimes. And all these things, they just remind us that we are in a very temporary, earthly tent. This is not intended to be our home. And you can't turn a tent into a home. You shouldn't try and turn that tent into a home. You should just long for something better. And that's why in verse 2 to 5 then, Paul says, while we're in this earthly tent, because it's not our home, we should groan and we should long for something better. He says, meanwhile, while we're in this earthly tent, in verse 2, he says, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. Now, where it talks about being clothed, think about it being in or being immersed in our heavenly dwelling. 
because we are clo- while we, because when we are clothed we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. I love that image. That when this heavenly dwelling comes, our mortality will be swallowed up by life. Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose. He has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. You know, as long as we live in this earthly tent, we should groan and we should long for something better. We should long for something more glorious. We should long for something more beautiful, a life that is life to the full, that's not just any life, but an eternal life that will know no end. We should long for our heavenly home that is built by God's hand. And it's built by God's hand because it had nothing to do with us. It was all about the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's what built it. We didn't earn this heavenly home. We didn't build it ourselves as though it was attributed to some good that was in us. It was purely because of what Jesus done at the cross and what he offers us as a gift by his grace for our benefit. But it was all built by God. And it's that home that we should long for because we should know that this is just a place we are passing through and it offers no real value or substance to us apart from an opportunity to serve our gracious God until the time we meet him in glory. Because despite all of this, don't we so often try to turn our tent into our home? We try to get ourselves comfortable. We surround ourselves in a nice warm community. We try to build up our assets and accumulate our possessions. We try to secure a successful career so we can lock ourselves down for life and get comfortable. That's when we try to turn a tent into a home. We try to turn a tent into something it's not. And the the challenge we need to think then is whether our hearts are in this earthly tent or whether our hearts long for our eternal home. Are our hearts focused on this earthly tent or do our hearts long for our eternal home. In Matthew 6, it says, Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where moth and rust don't destroy, where thieves don't break in, for where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. You'd be crazy to build up a whole lot of treasure and put it in a tent. You wouldn't do it, would you? We do it all the time. Rather than saying, God, this tent is yours. This treasure is not mine. It's yours. Do whatever you want because I know that I'm just passing through to see my Lord and Saviour in person in my heavenly home. Eternity is real. Eternity gives us hope. And eternity gives us a home. But it's not just that. Eternity should therefore determine how we live. Let's read verse 6 to 9 here. It says, Therefore, a lot of therefores in Second Corinthians when you read it, Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. Isn't that interesting? As long as our hearts are in this earthly tent, it is therefore away from the Lord. You can't have your heart in both places. It doesn't work. Therefore, he says, we live by faith, 
not by sight. We are confident, and I say I'd prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. That's Paul's preference. So he makes it his goal to please him. He says whether we are at home or in the body or away from it. Paul recognizes that if this earthly tent serves as our home, then our heart is away from God. And there's no question that Paul's heart longs for his eternal home. But because his heart longs for his eternal home, it determines the way he lives. And he says, as a result of my heart longing to be there, I'm going to live a life of faith, number one, and I'm going I'm to make it my goal to please him. He says that in verse 7 and verse 9. I will live a life of faith and I will make it my goal to please him. That is the way his eternity shaped the way he lived here and now. Now, I love that Paul says that because he doesn't skip over this life and says eternity is all that matters. Don't worry about the here and now. It's not important. Just think about eternity. Paul doesn't say that in the slightest. He says eternity is vitally important. We need to wrap our head around eternity to understand the cross, but the way we live here and now is also so important until we get there. Just because we're living in an earthly tent doesn't mean this life doesn't matter. It just means while we're in this earthly tent, we're called to live by faith and we are to live lives that please our God and our maker. See, the world will tell you that this life is all we have. So just live it however you please. If this world's all you've got, then just do whatever you want. You might as well use your time while you've got it. The gospel says this life is not all we have. It's but a shadow of what is to come. A shadow of a beautiful eternity that awaits for those who have their faith in Christ. And because that that beautiful eternity awaits, therefore, we live lives of faith in the one who built it. And we dedicate our life in this earthly tent to pleasing him. To pleasing him with everything we've got. To not please ourselves, to not try and please other people, but just to please our God and our Creator because we know ultimately He's the one we're going to meet and dwell with and commune with in person. And we just want that life to be an extension of the communion we start right here and now. And here's the kicker. It says in verse, seven, verse 10 of chapter 5, "...for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ." that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Church, the life that we choose to live now will have a direct bearing on what our eternity will look like. The life that we choose to live now will have a direct bearing on what our eternity will look like. For the truth is, we all deserve death. We've all fallen short of God's standard. We've all, uh, we've all had hearts which are consumed with self and sin. Nothing in ourselves deserves an eternity of hope, an eternity that's at home with a holy and perfect God. The Bible says that without anything else, therefore, we deserve nothing but death and eternal separation from God. And that's exactly what eternity will bring for a life which has lived without Jesus. It's an eternity that is still very real, but it's an eternity that is completely without hope. 
an eternity that is completely without the presence of a loving God. But in the cross, we've been presented with an incredible alternative. See, in the cross, by his grace, Jesus' son has died to die the death that we deserve to die. So that when we have faith in him, we are given a life that will continue on beyond this earthly tent into all eternity. It will continue on and that eternity will be characterized by life, not death. That eternity will be characterized by hope, not despair. And that life will involve a home that is with God and not without him. John 3.16. Why don't we all say it? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believed in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Eternity is real for, every, for everyone, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. But how we live now will have a direct bearing on what that eternity will look like. We can't skip over the here and now and just think about eternity all day long. That eternity has to shape the way we live. And it's got to urge us to live a life that's of faith in our loving God and a life that is therefore dedicated to pleasing him. Jesus went to the cross that we might have life to the full, but I don't think we'll ever experience that fullness of life unless we start living life with an eye to eternity. Now we're going to take communion together now as we remember the cross. And perhaps as we remember the cross and we remember how Jesus' blood was shed as we take the cup and we remember his body that was broken as we take the bread, let's reflect not just on the death, but let's reflect the fact that through that death we have access to an eternity that is characterized, that is real, that gives us hope, that gives us a home, and that should shape everything that we do here and now. Jesus, the cross is just as, ma- just as much about his life and the resurrection life that he lives and the resurrection life that we will live with him as it is about his death. The two go hand in hand and the two work together to achieve the outcome whereby we have an eternal dwelling place that was built purely by God, by his grace, by nothing that we've done. But yet we have access to that through Jesus Christ and through faith in him. May we praise God forever for his eternity and may that eternity determine how we live here and now. I'll just pray and then we can, we can share communion together as we reflect on the cross and how that cross needs to be understood in the light of eternity. Dear God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that there is a beautiful dwelling place that exists for those who place their faith in you. Lord, we thank you that you sent Jesus to die on the cross so that you might change our eternity, so you may change what that eternity looks like, so that when we believe in you, we have access to eternity that is not just real, but an eternity that gives us hope, that eternity that gives us a home beyond this earthly tent that we dwell in at the moment. And Lord, an eternity that can therefore shape our desire now to make it our sole desire to please you in all that we do. 
Lord God, may we never try to turn this earthly tent into something that it's not. May we never try to store up treasures and place our heart in our immediate needs and desires, Lord. Keep us focused on your eternity and surrender everything that we have in this earthly tent to you. Say you use it, God, because it's yours. And we want to please you. Lord, may we worship you together as we take communion tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. Wow, it's a bit different being up here to talk rather than sing. Alrighty, so I'm Nicola, for those of you who don't know me. Um, I'm one of the CW clan and I've been attending Canterbury Gardens for the last 10, 11 years. Um, I grew up in a very loving home. I've grown up in a very loving home. Um, and we've come from a Catholic background, so grown up through the Catholic Church, but um, were basically led to, by God to, to attend here. Um, so I've grown up believing in God um, but not understanding having a personal relationship with him. So I never really knew God personally. Um, so growing up, out of my five siblings, I was the one that was really self-conscious, quite insecure, never really feeling enough, um, so really self-critical, always desiring to change um, and be more. So I was never content. I really had zero self-worth um, and so I've always, well, I always had this emptiness and void that I just wanted to fill. Um, so due to this dissatisfaction with myself, this resulted in this constant feeling of being of no value and worth. And I was on this continual pursuit of what could fix this. Um, so post high school, um, I fell into this depressive state, I suppose, because I kind of missed the mark on what I desired to, to get into and so that left me in this, oh well, once again, I've failed myself. So I decided to do something for myself and take the reins of control and I was like, you know what, I'm going to do something, I'm going to focus on my body and I just want to fix it. And so I just, I fell into this, I suppose, um, mode of this will make me happy. Um, content and fill the emptiness and this longing inside of me, um, which opened up this way into an eating disorder that spanned over the last six years. Um, literally every kind of eating disorder I've, I've gone through, um, not the, the funnest of time and definitely very unintentional. Um, all my motives before it began were just, I just want to do this to feel good, to, you know, to, to make myself happy. But little did I realize it was going to spiral out of control. Um, this all occurred because I wasn't fully rooted in truth. Um, so I had this major lack of understanding of what it means to be a child of God and to be loved and accepted completely in the beloved with no strings attached. Um, so this thirst and hunger for more, and the feeling of being accepted, loved, secure was because my eyes and heart had not been impacted by the reality of the gospel and its effect on my life personally. Um, I was caught up in worldly views and matters which affected my body, mind and spiritual walk. Truth couldn't penetrate the hardness of my heart as there was so much I was clinging to and not willing to let go of. 
So through the ups and downs, I knew God, but I didn't fully believe that he could or that he would turn my situation around. Um, surely I was too far gone. How could this hope really apply to my life? So there was a real disconnect. In relation to eternity, all my feelings were based around not being worthy of this love, this grace and this mercy, which resulted in this numbness to this reality. It's been a journey, one with incredible lessons, growth, transformation and experience of God's continual goodness amidst pain, suffering and hardship. Fluctuations in ups and downs was really hard. Every single time, however, through the whole process, my heart was longing for more and more complete freedom. Earlier this year, that freedom came. One morning after a hard day, I was lying on my bed. Sorry, I didn't want to get emotional. (laughs) Um, And my heart was heavy and I was burdened. And this burden that I was just like no longer able to bear. And I was crying out, but it wasn't crying out in words. It was just a crying out, a longing for God to do something, to intervene, to reveal himself and give me an answer. And this is where Jesus met me in the space of being at the end of myself in prime position for complete surrender. I was flicking through my phone and scrolling down a Christian news feed that I follow, which I have no idea why I was on it because I hadn't been on it for that long. Um, But God led me to it, so thankful. (laughs) I stopped at a video and it was a sermon... um, that was called Who You Are in Christ. And it was by a guy that I'd actually been told about a few weeks prior at a Bible study that I attend, um, but I hadn't actually done anything about checking it out. So I played it. Didn't realise it actually went for two and a half hours, but after many tears and floods of joy and peace, it ultimately led to one extremely profound word, which has impacted me to this very day, victory. So mum had joined me watching it partway through and once it had finished I had a shower which was quite profound really in itself Um, because I came out and I spoke to her and I told her that I had victory and I'd never ever done that before. I told her that I was free and I really was. Transformed, victorious and free because of Christ's finished work on the cross. I experienced renewal body, mind and spirit. God transformed me from the inside out eight months ago, not by anything I could do, but everything that he did. All the lies that I had believed, the doubt, the fear and everything that wasn't of him broke away and he restored me. When you understand the victory you have in Christ, you live from that victory and in him you are found complete, loved, treasured and free. In all circumstances, God is good. His love is unfailing. He is constant, never changing. He's not like the shifting shadows, but he remains always. He's taught me that doubt has no place in our lives. If we doubt, we cannot fully trust, and if we lack bel- and we lack belief, which inhibits the power of his Holy Spirit to work in us and transform our very beings. Being set apart for Christ means literally not fitting into the mould of this world and choosing to day by day die to self to live for Christ, wholehearted surrender, living from the victory that he has given us. 
He chose to redeem me from the pit of despair, joylessness, and took my whole and took my worldly perspective of striving to be accepted, desirable, and loved, and showed me that I am already his daughter, chosen, adored, and loved beyond measure. I am joyful in Jesus, for he is enough. He's more than enough. He's won my heart, and all I desire now is to live for and be led by him. He's given me a new song to sing. From bitterness he has given me gratitude and hope to share. For this very purpose he uses our pain and suffering for his glory and praise and for our good. The world and all that it, it entails is fleeting. It is wasting away before our very eyes and soon will pass. Nothing besides Christ matters. If I am consumed with the matters of the world and its desires, like building my own kingdom, self-improving, flesh-gratifying, my eyes are not single to Christ and my life is not all about him. So something else is surely going to take its place. We need Jesus in every moment. This life I live holds nothing but the cross where Jesus took my shame. The gospel is transforming. It brings hope and restoration and it is freedom. Thanks. And just I wanted to quickly share a verse as well that has um, been an encouragement, and it's 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verse 57. It says, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. music team is going to come up and lead us in some songs. I'd encourage you to chat to Nikki and um, hear a bit more of a story. It is a joy to hear what God is doing.